0: strides in boosting life expectancy but premature death and sickness from lifestyle factors is worse they say it's a byproduct of rising prosperity and china can learn from rich countries which have already been down this path you're listening to the news on RTHK.
1: Good morning, three minutes after eight o'clock. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Kiev says 1,000 Russian troops have invaded Ukraine. President Obama says we don't have a strategy yet for ISIL in Syria. Risk markets stumble over the geopolitical events, and ICBC posts record profit. The big bank says we are keeping our bad loans at bay. Well, we have a big session coming up on strategy in China and the boatload of bad debt. And we'll also be looking closely at Ukraine and Syria.
2: We can confirm that Russian military boats are on Ukrainian ground. Ukrainian forces are capable to tackle and to cope with the Russian-led guerrillas. But this is quite difficult for us to fight
1: with Russia that's the Ukrainian prime minister, Yevgeny Yatsenyuk, saying we can fight the rebels, but we can't fight the Russian army. So that's a call to or for help. And here's President Obama on ISIL. I don't want to put
3: the cart before the horse. We don't have a strategy yet.
1: Of course, that's a tease. It's kind of tabloid. Uh, There is a reason for it. You'll have to stay tuned to hear why the president says there's no strategy at the moment. On the U.S. economy, a nice pickup in the second quarter. The U.S. economy grew more in the second quarter than first estimated. The Commerce Department reports that the gross domestic product rose at a 4.2 percent annualized rate. And that was up from the previous estimate. Mark Crumpton there of Bloomberg. So how good is that news?
4: Everybody is quite excited to see, obviously, a forehandle on second quarter growth. I will say it, a lot of people seem to have forgotten that it follows a contraction of over 2% mm-hmm. in the first quarter. And I don't think you can kind of dismiss that. If you take the two quarters together, the economy only grew a little over 1% in the first half of the year. Yeah,
1: so that's Michelle Girard at RBS. You can tell she's not all that excited
4: that's a disappointing performance I, I mean admittedly the question is where do we go from here and four percent plus is a great a great starting point but i'm not sure we're going to be able to sustain that pace
1: Okay, so you get all the breathless Wall Street commentary and, uh, look at the economy and that 4.2% print, that coming up shortly. In our featured segments, we have Uber China Bear Gillum Tulloch of GMT Research, who will be with us on cracks in the China property market. And also Francis Chung from CLSA will be along, share his insights on markets and the impact of the upcoming through train. And we'll be speaking with Bloomberg's Sheridan Prasso about the slums in Mumbai and the appeal of redevelopment. So all that coming up shortly. Markets in Asia are slightly down this morning. The Nikkei off 38 points. In Australia, the ASX 200 off 5 points. And in Solikospi down 6 points. So looks like uh, red numbers on the screens today. We'll get to currencies and gold and oil in just a moment. Ukraine's President Petro Poroshenko has canceled a trip to Turkey. He says Russian troops have invaded his country. Bloomberg's Peter Cook was asked what proof is being cited. NATO officials are backing that up and
3: they're including satellite images in their uh, evidence against Russia. Poroshenko says Russian forces moved across the border in what he calls a sharp escalation. He canceled the trip to Turkey, held an emergency meeting of his National Security Council a short time ago. Ukraine accuses Russia specifically of opening a new front in southeast, the southeastern part of the country near the key port city of Mariupol. A military spokesman says two Russian armored columns captured the town of Azovsk. Uh, NATO- NATO today again releasing satellite images that uh, officials say show Russian forces on the Ukraine side of the border, including self propelled artillery. A top NATO official says at least a thousand Russian troops are in Ukraine, another twenty thousand along the Ukraine Russia border, and Ukraine's prime
1: minister appealing for international help in light of the latest Russian moves. Bloomberg's Peter Cook and Ukraine has now ordered mandatory conscription for the armed forces. In other words, a draft. President Obama has admitted he doesn't have a strategy yet to combat ISIL in Syria. The president was asked if he would seek congressional approval for U.S. attacks on targets in Syria. And he said we don't have a strategy yet.
3: I don't want to put the cart before the horse. We don't have a strategy yet. I think uh, what I've seen in, in some of the... Uh, uh, news reports uh, suggests that uh, folks are getting a little further ahead uh, of where we 're at uh, than we currently are
1: and here 's why he says the strategy is not yet in place. Uh, the issue with respect to Syria is not simply a
3: military issue it 's also a political issue it's also uh, an issue that involves all the Sunni states in the region and Sunni leadership recognizing that this cancer that has developed uh, is one that they have to be just as invested in defeating as we are.
1: The President said he would consider his military options today with the National Security Council. Meantime, the President was upbeat on the economy. This morning we found out that our economy actually grew at
3: a stronger clip in the second quarter than we originally thought. Companies are investing, consumers are spending Over the past four and a half years, our businesses have now created nearly 10 million new jobs. So there are reasons to feel good about the direction we're headed. But, as everybody knows, there's a lot more that we should be doing to make sure that all Americans benefit from the progress that we've made. And I'm going to be pushing Congress hard on this when they return next week.
1: On Wall Street, stocks fell on the violence in Ukraine. Also, investors were a little disappointed over retail earnings of late. That overshadowed the solid GDP data. The S&P 500 was down 0.2% in 1996. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 42 points at 17,079. About 4.2 billion shares changed hands in the United States on the American exchanges, and that was the lowest for a full day of trading this year. We get more now from Michelle Girard at UBS.
4: There isn't really that much change in, in terms of growth, with the exception of maybe investment was a little bit better. But overall, I think the takeaway uh, was really the same as it had been before. Now, I mean, everybody is quite excited to see, obviously, a 4 on second quarter growth. I will say it, a lot of people seem to have forgotten that it follows a contraction of over 2% mm-hmm. in the first quarter. And I don't think you can kind of dismiss that. If you take the two quarters together, the economy only grew a little over 1%. One percent in the first half of the
1: year so michelle gerard there from rbs not ubs as i stated she is not that excited about a pickup in corporate spending
4: i don't- Necessarily think it's as strong as we'd like to, to see it. Um, certainly, the recovery in the second quarter, following a very weak first quarter where we saw an outright contraction, is good news. Um, you know, there are a lot of high hopes coming into the year that this was going to be the year businesses finally started to invest, to spend, and and they're doing that, but not at a dramatically different pace than we would seen over the last couple of years. And I still think there's a degree of caution. Companies are. Our spending, but nobody is going gangbusters. Nobody sees the need to go out and really invest at a much more rapid rate. I just don't think that they expect the economy is gonna suddenly roar.
1: Michelle Girard. Well, the yield on the 10-year Treasury sank to a multi-month low. It was down two basis points to 2.34 percent. And as we stated a little bit earlier, ICBC has reported a fourth consecutive quarter of profit growth below 10 percent, net income up seven and a half percent to 74.8 billion yuan. It was a record high, though. It matched the median estimate of some 13 analysts surveyed by Bloomberg. The big mainland banks are wrestling with rising bad loans in the country, as well as a cooling economy. ICBC says bad loans are under control, slightly under 1%. Well, let's say good morning to Gillum Tulloch, now founder of GMT Research. Gillum, good morning. Good morning. So let's talk a little bit about whether or not the bad loans are under control in China. <laughs> I, uh, I tweeted this morning that you were coming on and I said you were an uber China bear. Are you still?
5: Um, yeah, Absolutely. And why? Um, Well, I mean, China has embarked on the most incredible credit-driven bubble over the last five years, and, uh, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost, uh, so to speak, right now. Um, loan growth is going to slow going forward, and uh, NPLs are going to continue to rise. Uh, below 1%, well, you know, we've, I mean, I think that's what, what you said, that the number was for NPLs. Yeah. It, it, it's just not begun. Um, you know, it's going to go up above uh, 15% over the next few years.
1: Are they just lying about it, or is it just a different characterization, uh, as a lot of economists economic data can be.
5: There's a lot of uh, uh, pretend and extending going on um, with the banks. Um, So, yeah, you know, as loans mature, they're simply rolling them over. uh, And as a result, uh, they might not be recognizing them as uh, um, true NPLs. I mean, our analysis of the corporate sector uh, suggests that it's in a whole load of trouble um, and and leverage is just way too high for the returns that they're generating. Uh, And many companies, In fact, most of them cannot repay their debts um, within the time frame which which they're expected to mature.
1: So what's in the worst shape, the developers, the banks overall, uh, the provincial governments, or just generally speaking, the corporate sector?
5: Well, we don't really have much of an insight into the non-listed sector. Um, You know, as in all sort of uh, communist countries, uh, uh, economic statistics are state secrets, um, and the GDP numbers, the national accounts in China are, are, you know, just seem to be a a great work of fiction. Um, But we do know, as I said, that the corporate sector is in a whole load of trouble. And if you want to uh, focus on the epicenter of the lunacy, then you really just have to look at the financial statements of the property developers in China. This is the most over-leveraged sector in Asia. It's just in a whole load of trouble.
1: And we saw the shares of Country Garden get slammed yesterday as it's going to uh, a rights issue to raise some $3 billion. Do you expect a lot of uh, other developers will follow suit?
5: Yeah, absolutely. As pre-sales slow, uh, many of these companies are going to have or going to suffer a massive funding squeeze, and uh, they will have to raise a considerable amount of equity So uh, well done Country Garden getting its rights issue out there um, as early as it can because there's a hell of a lot more uh, coming investors' way.
1: So on the other side of the equation, uh, obviously there's an awful lot of savings in China. So when you have a lot of debt, if you also have a lot of savings, doesn't that put you on somewhat more comfortable ground?
5: Uh, well, I mean it depends where the savings uh, the savings are I mean, I I mean think these the savings, savings
1: I think the savings are well in excess of annual gdp isn't that something and for instance with loans uh, mortgages on uh, on properties as i understand it um, somewhere around 40 or 50% of properties have been bought by cash so people don't have a lot of debt there and they also have savings um, so are you saying that it's more the corporates and the, and the banks and the provinces and not people not the household sector that's in trouble well,
5: well, well okay the savings have already been lent out so people will want their money back and that's the danger is that people won't be able to repay the money um, and so you say they've
1: been loaned. It's been loaned out in the sense that they've bought shadow banking products.
5: It's exactly, it's gone into the corporate sector, etc. You know, so, so the banks have lent out the savings, um, or people have invested it elsewhere. And also this notion that that, that mortgages are, um, I think you said forty percent of GDP. Um, the, the property bubble in Asia, in Southeast Asia, post nineteen ninety seven, took a decade to recover, and mortgages. Were so small as a percentage of GDP and of banks' uh, total loan exposure that they didn't even bother disclosing it. So you know that's not that's an irrelevancy. Uh, to the argument, the fact is there has been the most enormous credit-induced bubble in China in the last five years. Money is fungible and most of it has gone into the property sector, which accounts for somewhere north of 15% of GDP. When this sector bursts, you know, it will have uh, uh, you know, global implications.
1: And, and you said at the outset that the chickens are coming home to roost. Uh, is one of those uh, metrics The uh, finally seeing a, a pretty broad reduction in house prices? Uh, we saw transactions drop a lot, and now the prices are actually coming down. Is that sort of the canary in the coal line. Coal uh, mine?
5: It, it is a canary, but um, you know, the Chinese economy operates slightly differently from other economies in that policymakers control the banking system. Um, so, for example, in the U.S., uh, Bernanke and central bankers went out and tried to persuade the banks to lend into the economy, and they didn't. They just sat on the money that they were given. Uh, In China, of course, um, they did go out and and lend in quite spectacular fashion, because that's what policymakers told them to do. Um, If uh, you're seeing a flagging property market, uh, it is possible that policymakers panic and start injecting even more ridiculous quantities of credit into the system. And let me put this into perspective Uh, Thailand managed to increase net new credit as a percentage of GDP in excess of 20%, or sorry, in excess of 30% for one year, which was a 94 pre-Asian financial crisis. The US plus 22% in 2006 before the global financial crisis. China in excess of 35% for 5 years consecutive years so they could just do the same again in 2014 the bubble looks like it's deflating but it's all up to the policymakers of whether or not they want to take the medicine now or later
1: okay Uh, listen i've got um, roughly 10 minutes with you and 10 minutes with francis jung who's uh, on the line waiting i just want to get a final question from you uh, gillen or a final answer to a question Uh, what is the impact on us i mean should we be really concerned here in hong kong
5: um, well, yes, of course, because uh, uh, you know Chinese uh, consumers are the largest marginal buyer of every single product in Hong Kong, and if they're losing their taste for property um, in, in the sort of you know the Greater Chinese region, um, it will have an impact, a dampening effect. On, uh, on property prices uh, in Hong Kong. So, so, yes, it's a concern. But the real uh, test will be when interest rates rise in the U.S. because they set our interest rate policy. So if you have a combination of rising interest rates in the U.S., which I don't think is going to happen, actually, um, and uh, weakening Chinese uh, demand, then you have a real problem. Okay. Uh, I would have thought that the best people can hope for are sort of slightly weakening prices in Hong Kong.
1: Okay, Gillum, thank you very much for joining us on Money for Nothing. Gillum Tullock is founder of GMT Research. Money for Nothing now, 20 minutes after 8 o'clock. Well, Chinese retail investors are likely to be quite enthusiastic of the stock connect that's coming up. And that is the through chain that I alluded to earlier that will connect Hong Kong and Shanghai. And we're joined now on the line uh, for a little short interview. Francis Jung, CLSA's head of China Hong Kong strategy for some discussion about China. What we've just been talking about with Gillum and also with this uh, stock connect. Uh, Francis, good morning yeah, so first, if I could get you to comment on the doom and gloom call, I seem to remember over the past few years that you've always been pretty cautious about China, not one of the uh, cheerleaders. Uh, where do you stand at the moment?
2: um well i'm I'm a strategist to look at the equity markets, right? So I've been calling for this rally that we have in the last few months to turn downward. More broadly, you likely see the government continue easing or stimulating the economy to avoid, the, I think, what Gillum is trying to talk about. And I do think they have the ability to put that off um, longer than people expect. The real issue is, will they allow the economy to slow? If they allow the economy to slow, they can guide it a soft landing. But if they try to keep growing at 7.5 percent I think uh, it's going to be very difficult. And you uh, could... Wind up with a hard landing scenario.
1: Let me ask you why they would need to keep growth high. It doesn't seem like unemployment is that big of a problem at the moment.
2: You know, you're absolutely right for them to keep it high, as well around as 7.5%, which what Lee has said in the last few months. It, essentially, I think it's a political issue. It could be because there's so much anti-corruption going on right uh, right now. They don't want to seem vulnerable by having a weak economy. And what? Has to happen is that when they do the reforms, the economy has to slow. You can't have reforms, to have a fast-growing economy, but perhaps in the meantime, there's a lot of politics that we're not aware of and always, the economy
1: is very important to ensure power is consolidated. Sure, there's a lot of political power that has to be dealt with, factions, and if you clamp down on the state-owned enterprises, you know, you're slamming one faction that uh, could be quite um, uh, troublesome for you. So if they if they fall at a pace of seven and a half this year, guide to about seven next year, guide to about six the year after, is that the uh, the kind of slow pace that would enable them to have, uh, to not have a hard landing
2: yeah and first the hard thing about a hard landing is you need to define a hard landing right so you i think in general i think you can do what you just said in terms of guiding down and they should be able to avoid a hard landing mainly because they have the ability and the balance sheet to do a lot of infrastructure investment the problem with this infrastructure investment over the next few years is i think they can cushion to a slow landing but it's going to add a lot of debt to the country and infrastructure returns are going to be dated, right? So I think it will probably pull down long-term growth for China.
1: Let me just read out a couple of quick uh, headlines, things to watch, uh, and you tell me what's the most important. The ICBC net up 7.5%, the China banks uh, entering a slower growth era, so I headlined that this morning. Earlier, PetroChina reaps higher first-half profit from gas prices. Scenic profit drops as spending undercuts uh, higher production. And Chalco's first-half net loss widens on lower aluminum prices. Uh, any of those get your attention?
6: Well,
2: you're talking about the big, largely big cap SOEs. Uh, and the big cap SOEs are actually doing decent profits. The banks are doing better than people expected in terms of profits. But that's not so important because what China really needs to do is push back these SOEs and allow the private sector to grow and get the banks lending to the, S- to, the, I'm sorry, to the private sector and the SMEs, the smaller businesses. So the better these companies does, it really just means that the private sector isn't growing as fast as it can be.
1: Yeah. And what about us? So one of the things that Gillum warned about, and maybe this is being borne out now, if you look at um, July retail sales uh, yesterday, the value down 3.1% year on year uh, uh, compared to estimates of 2.7%. So we're actually seeing the impact of the slowdown quite quite sharply in Hong Kong, are we not?
2: Yeah, I think there's a correlation, obviously, on the Chinese economy and the Hong Kong economy. And one problem Hong Kong has probably hurt itself is that they price themselves out of the market, right? Because property price has gone up so much, and so as well other prices gone up a lot. It's no longer as attractive as a travel destination, and there's basically too much luxury in Hong Kong. And that's one of the reasons why the retail sales are weak, and all luxury is actually bought by mainlanders.
1: Yeah. Okay, let's take a little bit of a of a right turn here and talk about the through train because that's uh, one of the things we wanted to talk to you about. The, the uh, Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect uh, had a nice discussion yesterday with, um, with an analyst who said that he's basically positive on it, although still a lot of little things, technical details that haven't been worked out. Uh, what does your research point to in terms of uh, how people will respond to this?
2: You know... Being positive on the US perspective, I think this is very positive for China, right? Because this remains reform. Um, it means opening up the capital and getting cost of capital right within China, and this is very positive. And ultimately, this could potentially mean higher credit costs in China, which will slow the economy lower. But it will get the right cost of capital. That means investments will be made more positive. The most important thing about this through train initially is that you look at this current setup, it's actually very restrictive. There isn't a lot of quota to go around. It's pretty easy to see this quota fill up pretty fast because it isn't a lot of quota. Um, But I think what's likely to happen, this will actually evolve over time. You get more quota. And I think over time, as this increases the quota, you see much more buying Hong Kong equities uh, by mainland investors. So I think that, that is positive for the market. But in general, I think much more specific stocks rather than a broad market. So I think mainland investors tend to be more momentum driven. Uh, TMT stocks, I think Tencent is very really going to be a hot uh, stock for people to buy because they can't buy it. Um, they know it will be a hot stock for people to buy from the mainland uh, actually, also Macau, they can't buy Macau. So certain sectors are going to see a fund flow, and increasing flow over time as the quotas
1: increase. It's curious, though, that we're not seeing a run-up in those ones that you just mentioned. Uh, um, I mean, Tencent's been easing off of uh, an all-time high that it set, and obviously the gaming shares in Macau have struggled. they down 20%. Yeah,
2: and that's a really good uh, observation. But Tencent, I mean, this is very short-term, right? Tencent's cents an uh, all-time high right now. And then gaming companies right now are actually doing badly because it has slowed down in the second half of the year. Um, but the true train hasn't really started yet. So, you know, mainland investors haven't bought. What you haven't seen is actually people are trying to front run this. That's they what you'd think.
1: You'd think people would get out in front of it.
2: Actually, you look on the average, the dual list of stocks, the premiums actually have increased. So there has been some change, but there hasn't been as much as you thought they think it is and there's a couple of reasons for this right because i think generally mainland investors are not that positive on equities mainly because you know qdi funds haven't done very well and asia markets done badly so i think there's really more for specific stocks
1: yeah i guess if you went back to 2006 and 7 they were pretty excited about equities
2: yeah, Unfortunately,
1: it hasn't turned out that well since then. Yeah, that's true. Um, listen, do you think that the increase in quotas uh, and, and something that a lot of people say will eventually happen with the connect, um, that that happens um, in, a, in an inverse relationship with um, uh, restrictions taken away from the liberalization of the b?
2: I think the quota is going to be reach pretty fast, between six to nine months. And the reason I say that, you look at the quota in relation of um, the market cap in Hong Kong, the quota is only about 1.3%. It's pretty small, right? So I think that's going to change pretty fast within a year. That's what people need to really look for, out for is this opening of the closed-loop system. And let me explain that. When the mainland investors buy a Hong Kong stock and they make money and they sell it, that money immediately goes back to China. So, the, so this isn't really an opening of the capital account. The money goes right back to China. Oh, I see.
7: But right, what needs to change and this has to change is
2: that this closed loop, we call it, has to open up. This helps opening up the capital account. That is the ultimate goal of this fruit chain.
1: Yeah, that was my point that if um, you know, if you were too aggressive in raising the quotas, a lot of money would flee China. Yeah. And you will. can't do that until you've decided to really liberalize the renminbi. Okay, you started out by saying that you've been advising clients to sell this rally um, that we've had. In fact, it's actually been it hasn't been good for the past couple of weeks. It it happened more in July than it did in August. But um, when when does it stop and when does it turn around again? Because you're overall positive on the connect.
2: Yeah, I think I do think the connect is going to be much more focused on individual stocks and sectors.
1: So you you'd be shorting the the A50 and some of these um, uh trackers that that track the broader um you know top 50 stocks or whatever.
2: Yeah, if they're going to be you're going to be playing the stock and I would not be buying the tracker, right? Okay. Because I think they're the biggest cap stocks are at a premium essentially.
1: Just buy 10 cent the Macau gaming shares. I think you said Lenovo as well. Anything else?
2: Yeah. Yeah, we have a list of top 10 stocks that we like. And uh, that would be um, China Mobile, Tencent, and China, Lenovo, Brilliance, Tektronix, to name a few of
1: them. Okay. So you're good. That forces people to go to your website and check it out. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much. We're out of time. The news is upon us. Uh, thanks very much, Francis, for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Francis Jung, CLSA's head of China Hong Kong strategy, speaking with us, unfortunately, on the phone, but still speaking live here on the program. Here's how the weather's shaping up. Mainly fine today. A chance of isolated showers. Hot with a maximum temperature of 32. Mainly fine tomorrow and just a few showers around early next week. The news is coming up next. Just a tick after 8.30, the news with Samantha Butler.
0: Air pollution, smoking, obesity and accidents, especially on the road, kill at least 4.7 million Chinese a year and cost the country tens of billions of dollars. In a study published in The Lancet, Chinese and American experts say the mainland has made great strides in boosting life expectancy from 40 years in 1950 to 76 years in 2011. But premature death and sickness from lifestyle factors is worse. They say it's a byproduct of rising prosperity and China can learn from rich countries which have already been down this path. The Philippines has rounded up hundreds of undocumented Chinese nationals amid protests from Beijing. Radio Australia's Shirley Escalante reports from Manila.
4: Philippines authorities have arrested 600 Chinese nationals believed working as undocumented engineers and laborers for the construction of power plants in the northern Philippines. Immigration officials say initial verification showed 82 foreign workers were without proper documents.
8: Charges
9: would be filed that would initiate deportation proceedings.
4: Last week,
0: 50 undocumented
4: Chinese nationals were arrested in Manila, prompting Beijing to lodge a complaint on the detention in what is feared could aggravate tensions related to the South China Sea dispute. But Manila has clarified that the arrests had nothing to do with its territorial row with China.
0: President Obama has said Russia is responsible for the violence in eastern Ukraine. In a statement at the White House, Mr. Obama said the separatists there were trained, armed and funded by Russia. He said the fighting in Ukraine wasn't the result of a homegrown indigenous uprising, but of deep Russian involvement. He said new images of Russian forces inside Ukraine made Moscow's role plain for all to see. However, he said that US and NATO would not be taking any military action against the separatists in Ukraine.
3: We are not taking military action to solve the Ukrainian problem. What we're doing is to mobilize the international community to apply pressure on Russia. Uh, But I think it is very important to recognize that a military solution to this problem is not going to be forthcoming.
0: You're listening to the news on RTHK.
1: Good morning to you, 833. This is Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Our take on the top stories, Kiev saying that a thousand Russian troops have invaded Ukraine. President Obama saying we don't have a strategy yet for ISIL in Syria. Of course, the risk market stumbled overnight. Most of the markets were down, the equity markets, in Europe and in the United States. uh, Most of the major indices off today. ICBC posting record profit, but the bank says uh, we are keeping bad loans at bay, that despite much criticism of how bad loans are on the rise. So we'll get you details on these stories now, and we'll also be speaking a little bit later with Sheridan Prasso, Bloomberg's editor-at-large for the Asia-Pacific, and uh, we'll be talking a little bit more. More with other guests as well. NATO says about 1,000 Russian soldiers are operating in Ukraine, that they are fighting alongside pro-Russian separatists. NATO has also released some satellite pictures, which says were taken a week ago and show that Russian tanks, as well as air defense systems and artillery, are deployed inside Ukraine. Ukraine's ambassador at large, Alexander Sherba, says Moscow's denials that its forces have crossed the border are baseless.
8: It's a continuation of the tactic that Russia has been using in Ukraine for quite a while, basically doing whatever they want and then denying everything. The latest act of this uh, tragedy and comedy in the same time was basically sending thousands of troops with tanks and then
1: saying it's, uh, it's just rebels. President Obama also said that Russia is to blame for the violence in eastern Ukraine. Speaking at the White House, he said the fighting was not the result of a homegrown uprising, but of deep Russian involvement.
3: The violence is encouraged by Russia. The separatists are trained by Russia. They are armed by Russia. They are funded by Russia. Russia has deliberately and repeatedly violated the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. And the new images of Russian forces inside Ukraine make that plain for the world to see. This comes as Ukrainian forces are making progress against the separatists. As a result of the actions Russia has already taken, and the major sanctions we've imposed with our European and international partners, Russia is already more isolated than at any time since the end of the Cold War.
1: President Obama said the U.S. and its allies would look for ways to expand economic sanctions on Russia. Earlier, Mike Weeks asked our Europe correspondent, Gavin Gray, if NATO is accusing Russian troops of actually invading Ukraine.
6: Everyone's been quite careful, Mike, how they are hedging their bets on this one, because all the time... There are some improbable reasons being put forward by Moscow as to some of the things that are taking place, but they're not completely impossible. So, for instance, everyone believes these tanks to be uh, Russian. Uh, However, uh, no one has uh, a conclusive proof, as it were that they are Russian. Now, the latest thinking uh, and the latest sort of proof, if there is proof, comes from the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and they say that they have discovered that this mixed convoy of tanks includes the appearance of a modern T-72 tank. Now, I won't get too complex, but basically the T-72 tank has never been seen outside Russia. So, although the insignia might have been covered up, although the people manning the tanks might not be in Russian uniform, the Institute believes that this is conclusive proof, uh, effectively, that this is a Russian tank. Convoy. Of course, the other uh, episode about the uh, discovery of 10 Russian troops in eastern Ukraine, uh, the Russians have explained away by saying they got lost near the border. Again, unlikely, improbable, but not entirely impossible. And it's the ambiguity of war at the moment which is causing this muddy to the waters.
0: This area where this incursion has occurred is on, I understand, Ukraine's southeast border. Is, Is that a new area of fighting?
6: Well, there's no doubt that while the Russians have been hauled up, as it were, and surrounded in their strongholds, uh, or the rebel fighters, I should say, in Donetsk, that uh, huge city in the east, uh, they have been looking to break out. They're looking to get supply lines in and move to other cities. So, yes, this development in the southeast is very much a new uh, uh, d- development there. And what it might well do is develop some sort of a, uh, a line, a supply route from uh, cities like that that they've taken down to new areas and maybe even down to Crimea. Now, of course, that is a highly uh, uh, important geographical area uh, and there's no doubt that they are looking to take control of areas that would enable them then to secure a stronger foothold. At the moment it's quite disparate, but if they're able to secure some of these areas that they already get together, uh, then that will uh, give them a much firmer footing and make uh, uh, getting rid of them, which is what uh, the Ukrainian government has placed, make getting rid of them much more difficult.
1: That's Gavin Gray, our European correspondent. The FBI is investigating reports that Russian hackers have targeted big American banks, including JP Morgan. The hacking is reported to have involved the theft of some sensitive customer data. Details now from the BBC's Michelle Fleury in New York.
0: Well, we've got a spokesman from the company that said that the bank regularly gets, uh, if you like, hacked, uh, to use sort of a a simple word. Uh, And apparently, for financial institutions, this is an increasing issue: Uh, cyber security, how to protect the information of their customers. uh, Something that we're starting to see regulators in America pay a closer attention to, specifically those with oversight of financial uh, financial companies. The FBI is currently looking into whether or not it's sort of uh, foreigners or or whether it's sort of government actors involved in this. Uh, It raises particular alarm. There has been talk that perhaps this is linked to U.S. sanctions on Russia and that somehow this is retaliation. That's what the FBI is looking into. It's very early at this point and we don't really know uh, for sure.
1: The ICAC has defended the timing of its raids on Next Media boss Jimmy Lai, as well as one of his assistants and Labour Party leader li Chuck Yan. The anti-graft body said that it initiated the searches after making progress in its investigation of complaints over the alleged acceptance of advantages by some lawmakers. The ICAC stressed that it acted impartially, as well as lawfully and without any political consideration. But Chinese university political analyst Ma Nok told RTA many people are not going to believe that.
10: The timing is certainly very sensitive because with the NPCSC resolution and also with the maybe imminent uh, occupying central movement, and we all know that Mr. Lai's um, media organizations are all in the forefront of supporting these movements. So I think it it is natural that some people would interpret it as some kinds of persecution of their political dissidents.
0: Now, according to Lee Chuk-Yan, the search was in connection with a donation he's received from Jimmy Lai and a LegCo debate on press freedom earlier this year. So how did the debate come into the equation from your point of view?
10: I think uh, uh, donation itself uh, usually de- doesn't break the law, but uh, it is uh, you have to find some evidence that uh, uh, some public officers accept donations in exchange for some uh, 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 in exchange for de- them doing something. But it, I think it is very t- difficult to argue that, uh, uh, say, for example, Mr. Lee Cheuk you know, is supporting press freedom be- just because that he has taken money from. Mr. Jimmy Lai, because I think uh, for a lot of the pan Democrats, I think their positions on press freedom uh, ha- are well known and then it has been uh, the same position for a number of year- a-, a number of years.
0: What sort of message do you think is coming out of uh, an incident like this?
10: I think it is, uh, it is going to, uh, send a warning signal to, uh, rich people in Hong Kong that if they, uh, if they want to donate money, uh, to the Pandemocracy, they may be, there may be trouble. Whereas, uh, I think a lot of people have been donating a lot of much more money to, to the, uh, pro-establishment parties. And then, uh, it seems that they have never been, uh, uh, questioned on,
1: on these counts. Chinese University Professor Mo Nok there speaking with Marie Evans. Well, Beijing has launched its campaign to persuade Hong Kong to accept what even one of its top legal experts admits is the imperfect political reform package about to be handed down. The dean of Tsinghua University School of Law, Wang Jianmin, was speaking to the Foreign Correspondents Club.
8: In the beginning, black Americans didn't enjoy uh, right to vote. The women didn't enjoy right to vote. I think Hong Kong is in the beginning of democracy. Start from zero. You cannot expect in the very beginning you have a perfect universal
1: suffrage. The former member of the Basic Law Committee said Hong Kong is starting from zero and that it needs its own style of democracy to fit the local situation. Professor Wong also noted that the interests of businessmen and Hong Kong's elites had to be considered when implementing one person, one vote.
8: Every person, rich or poor, no one should be ignored. No one should be left behind, especially the business community. Their slice of pie will be shared by the others through universal suffering. So we have to take full consideration of their concerns. That's why we require balanced participation. We require nominating committee. And uh, functional constituencies.
1: Meantime, a former deputy director of the State Council's Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, Chen Zhou Er, said that Hong Kong will get a good and genuine form of universal suffrage in 2017. He told RTHK all voters will be involved in the chief executive election, then, either directly or indirectly. Our Wendy Wong has more.
0: In an exclusive interview with RTHK, Mr Chen, who also has a national level think tank on Hong Kong, said candidates for the 2017 CE election will be picked by a nominating committee that broadly represents Hong Kong citizens. And all voters will then choose their new leader through one man, one vote. He added that although the initial form of universal suffrage here may not be perfect, the system would improve in future. Mr Chen also said discussions on political reform cannot be never-ending and it will be pragmatic to to accept the proposed reform package at this point. He also said requiring chief executive headquarters to gain the support of at least half the nominating committee before they can formally become candidates is normal, fair and democratic.
1: Wendy Wong reporting. Well, the time is now 15 minutes before 9 o'clock. Thanks for joining uh, this program, Money for Nothing, where we look at business and finance in the first half, a little bit more on money and politics in the second half with quite a lot of news. And I can give you a quick update on markets. Uh, They're all down this morning. The Nikkei off about a quarter of a percent. Markets in Australia and Seoul, the equity markets there, are down. The dollar is trading at 103.72 yen, so that's a little stronger dollar against the yen where the euro is at 1.318 us dollars so the euro continuing to weaken uh, modestly the australian dollar has picked up a little strength in the past week now 93.52 us cents and the pound is now 12 hong kong dollars and 85 cents and just a couple of quick uh, tidbits of news you can use analyst ratings changes china mobile raised to buy at mizuho hsbc raised to buy at ubs uh, p icc uh, and uh, PNC, they're raised to buy at Jefferies, Sino Land cut to hold at Daiwa Securities. Well, the slum districts in India, particularly in Mumbai, rose to world attention in the film Slumdog Millionaire. Those squalid districts, home to six and a half million, are now, though, slowly giving way to redevelopment in the form of some rather glitzy shopping malls and luxury property. It's a phenomenon that is led by developers, but one that's also a win-win deal, some say, for the slum dwellers. We're joined now on the program by Sheridan Prasso, Bloomberg's editor-at-large for the Asia Pacific, uh, Sheridan. Good morning. Good morning. So, how? What is actually happening, and and how is this different from what the government has done?
7: Well, what the actually, what the Mumbai government has done is introduce a very unique sort of public-private partnership in which it allows developers to choose a slum area, go into that area get 70% of the slum dwellers who live there to sign over their rights to the developer to develop that plot. And once the developer gets that consent from those people who have the right to live on the land, according to the law, um, if they've lived there for a certain period—right now it's as of 2000— The government will then allow the developer to clear the land, move those slum dwellers off, give them temporary housing, while it constructs a mixed-use development on that site so that it allows all of those slum dwellers to get rehoused with free homes, and next to it, they put up a luxury tower, or two or three or many, that they can then sell on the open market for, you know, in some cases, a million U.S. dollars, and That's how they make their profit in order to be able to rehouse the slum dwellers who originally lived there. And it's a solution that allows the rehousing of the people. They win because they get free homes, and the government doesn't actually have to put in a penny.
1: Yes, we've seen a model of sorts like that here, not so much with slums, but just with redevelopment. And people have rejected it in some ways. And, you know, this is an even higher threshold. Uh, If 29% uh, or 30% uh, don't want to move, that's still a lot of people.
7: It is. um, But at the end of the day, because everybody is entitled to a free home, if someone is coming to you and saying, "Okay," even though you didn't consent and you're part of the 30% who doesn't agree, um, the lure of having a free home during the years of construction, rent is paid for, and the lure of having a home that you then own outright afterwards, which you can then sell after a lock-up period of 10 years, is actually a very strong incentive. And uh, actually, one of the developers that we met goes around personally and sits down with people in their mud-floored shacks and explains it all to them and says, you know, what can I do to convince you? And in some cases, he's come up with actually some very innovative solutions. There was one family, for example, who refused to move because the, the mother-in-law said, look, my two daughters-in-law married to my two sons. They fight constantly. They were living in a 90-square-foot um, shack basically mm. and she said i'm not moving into a new place where these two women are going to be fighting all the time i need two apartments and the slum developer redeveloper said i can't do that by law but what i can do is draw a put a wall in the middle of it and they can live separately and that's things like that that finally persuade every last slum dweller to move out
1: Okay, so the proper question probably should have been, uh, how broad-based is the support from uh, people in in terms of your investigation?
7: It's, it seems that the incentive to have a new home for free is actually a very strong motivation in terms of people wanting to um, endorse this project. In the past, there have been some irregularities in how it was conducted, um, before the 1980s, actually, the government used to come in and just bulldoze the slums and kick people off the land. And so obviously it's seen as a better solution than that. Um, but some developers have you know, not entirely promised or given what they have promised. And so that's led to a little bit of skepticism. But it does seem that more and more the reputable developers are coming in, giving people what they have promised – and that word is now spreading like wildfire. The pace of these developments is now uh, greatly, greatly growing. There's so many more of them now than they ever were. And so it's actually starting to make a dent into all of the slums that you see in Mumbai.
1: You mentioned the public-private partnership. We've dwelled more on the private side. What's the public side?
7: Uh, simply that the government will choose the developer to allow to do the, the redevelopment. And... From the public sector standpoint, what they get is then more people who are living in the above-ground economy, people who become taxpayers, who get, who no longer are siphoning off free electricity, you know, who become you know, bona fide residents of a city rather than sort of squatters and people living in the shadows.
1: So would you say that this program may transform the look of Mumbai in the next dozen years?
7: It's already starting to. In the area of central Mumbai, which is the, becoming more and more the main business district, um, you see a huge number of these slum redevelopments starting to happen. And, in fact, there's a very prime piece of land um, in a district called Worley, which is right in the middle. Um, and that is about to get a Four Seasons. Um, I'm sorry. No, it's about to get a Rich Carlson Hotel on the land that used to be a slum because of one of these redevelopment projects
1: yeah I always get these big five star hotels mixed up too you know I spend so much time in them <laughs> um, okay so um, it sounds like a, it sounds like an interesting uh, where can we read your story in detail and where
7: uh, the story is available on bloomberg dot com um, and it uh, it can be found by simply uh, finding the term slum whisperer we called Uh, The developer that we featured, the slum whisperer of Mumbai, because he's been very good at being able to go around and convince people to move out, allow him to construct these um, multi-use sites and then move people back in.
1: And this is a young guy, a 40-something property developer. Uh, Maybe you can profile him just in 30 seconds for us.
7: He's someone whose family has been building castles in Rajasthan for uh, forever. And he saw an opportunity to break away from the traditional family business, come to Mumbai, and actually do something to help this, what is in fact a terrible and embarrassing problem for places like Mumbai that, you know, are financial capitals that have to cope with influxes of people from all over the country coming in, squatting there, and living in terrible conditions. And he said, well, this is. This is a project, a government project, that allows me to be able to both do something to help and also to profit. So the profit motive is actually quite interesting because by allowing the developers to come in and make money off of this plan, it gives more and more people the incentive to do it.
1: Mm. Okay, Ms. Prasso, thank you very much for joining us on Money for Nothing. Sheridan Prasso, Bloomberg's Editor-at-Large for the Asia-Pacific. This is Money for Nothing, six minutes before nine o'clock. A two-day international symposium examining the issues and experiences on the rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and intersex people here is being held at Chinese University. This symposium is a first for Hong Kong. It was organized by the Equal Opportunities Commission, the European Union Office to Hong Kong and Macau, and the university's Gender Research Center. Arian Pooler asked EOC Chairperson Dr. York Chow what is being planned for this symposium.
9: I think the symposium aims at um, giving more information to the stakeholders and also the, the public regarding uh, the situation of LGBT rights uh, development, in, particularly in Europe, because uh, we are partnering with the European Union and also the Gender Research Centre of the Chinese University.
6: What, what kind of speakers do you have lined up at the symposium? Uh,
9: we have quite a range of speakers uh, representing uh, various countries uh, from Europe, particularly from uh, the UK, from uh, Holland. Uh, we have also a speaker uh, describing the recent changes in France Uh, We have also the Council General of Spain actually speaking. Uh, So um, on the whole, I think we have speakers who come from the academic background, from the uh, parliamentary uh, 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 members, and also uh, some of the uh, theological uh, experts as well. So I think uh, we're able to address quite a number of issues regarding to how the Changes actually uh, actually happened in, in European countries, and what are the process, and also um, what, what were the challenges actually they face over the, those changes, but more importantly, I think we are able to perhaps uh, understand our situation more in Hong Kong because we have also invited uh, quite a number of uh, representatives from Hong Kong, the uh, religious leaders uh, the, uh, the government officials, the legislators and a lot of stakeholders uh, both actually uh, for the LGBT rights and also against the LGBT rights. So I think we have a very balanced uh, audience today.
6: Now, of course, Hong Kong is in the middle of a consultation looking at discrimination law reform. What are some of the challenges that are likely to come up during this symposium?
9: I think there would be discussion on uh, different views on what will be the impact of uh, a discrimination law uh, uh, for the whole society, whether we would change the society, we would change the uh, perception. But I think in general, because we had one one uh, closed door meeting yesterday, I think the impression is uh, for those countries who have actually passed discrimination laws. Uh, I think the LGBT uh, community would be much more uh, at ease in coming out, you know, and able to uh, have a fair share of the. Uh, activity, I think it's actually a more positive uh, image, actually, they, they have. And uh, because of that, I think uh, everyone feels a bit more uh, fair and safe, actually, in the community. And I think it's something that I think we should, we should try to look at whether Hong Kong will be able to reach as well.
1: Dr. York Chow, the EOC chairperson, speaking on Hong Kong Today, Malaysia Airlines has reported a big financial loss following a drop in passenger numbers after the disappearance of an airliner over the Indian Ocean back in March. The company's warning of even bigger losses in the second half of the year as bookings dropped by more than 30 percent immediately after another of its airliners was shot down over Ukraine in July. More from the BBC's Russell Padmore. For the first six months of this year, Malaysia has posted losses of $238 million, 65% more than last year. The airline is in the process of being nationalised in a takeover by the investment arm of the government, Kazanar. On Friday, the Sovereign Wealth Fund is expected to outline a complete overhaul of the airline, axing as many as a quarter of the workforce of 19,500, as well as cutting some routes. It's thought plans for job cuts will face stiff resistance from trade unions. India is to launch a plan to provide a bank account for every household in the country. It's a landmark initiative to fight poverty. It's hoped to save billions of dollars in welfare spending by the government. The BBC's Sanjoy Majumdar reports. More
8: Indians own a mobile phone than they do a bank account. In fact, it's estimated that 40% of the country's 1.2 billion people lack access to any kind of financial services. It means they have no safe place to park their money And more importantly, it means that if they need any kind of loan, they're left at the mercy of moneylenders who charge extortionate rates of interest. So this radical new plan aims to bring every new household, every Indian household, under the banking system. If this plan is a success, the government hopes that not only will it extend financial security to all Indians, but it will also help them pay benefit welfare benefit checks directly into people's accounts and thereby avoid any kind of fraud or corruption.
1: BBC Sanjoy Majumdar reporting. Well, that's our program for today. We'll take you out with some of the latest uh, numbers from Asia. The dollar is trading at 103.72 yen, the euro at a dollar 31. The Nikkei is down 56 points, a third of a percent. Other markets are slightly lower as well. In the weather today, mainly fine, some isolated showers, hot with a maximum temperature of 32. Mainly fine tomorrow, and very hot, and a few showers expected into next week. That's the program Money for Nothing, and Morning Brew comes up next.
8: Okay, My it's a gas.